Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. We come to quite an interesting passage. And it's one which, for a number of reasons, has the ability to make us feel a little uncomfortable. It's one that we might easily be tempted to gloss over and just miss out. Why? Well, because it deals with a subject that many of us feel awkward talking about, particularly in Christian settings. And that is money and about how we use our possessions. So I want us to look at a couple of the passages. First of all, I'm going to read one that we missed out when we looked at Acts 2. And then I'm going to carry on from where we left off in Acts 4. So firstly, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 onwards. And it reads, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in the homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And then carrying on from where we got up to in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 onwards, all the believers were one in heart and mind, No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, sold a field that he owned. And he brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Carrying on into chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit 
and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And a great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will also carry you out. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church, and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits. And all of them were healed. Now I don't know about you, but I think if I'd been Luke writing this record, I might have wanted to miss some of this passage out. How attractive is it for some new club or movement when God starts striking people down dead. I mean, when it says, and a great fear seized the people, I can understand why. When it says, no one dared join them, I know why. Do you want to be the next? But Luke knew that these events would show us a great deal. Now, it would be easy this morning to pick on one of the less challenging applications from this passage. But actually today we're going to hit it head on. Because I think we can learn a lot about God's economy from this passage. We're used to living in our economy, aren't we? We know how it operates. We understand the tax system. Some of us even understand the benefits system. We know how trade works in our culture. We understand what constitutes a contract. And the list goes on. We understand something about our economy. But we're encouraged in Romans 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. We're not meant to be spending our time understanding this economy. We're meant to be getting in to what God's will is. Now from the very outset, the church in its earliest days started to show signs that what was happening amongst them was different to the prevailing culture of the time. They weren't restricted to the things that drove people in the world that they lived in. In fact, they were driven by the testimony of the Holy Spirit in them. And they began to live out a life that typified God's kingdom. So instead of seeing in them the aspects of the Roman Empire and the Jewish culture in which they lived, we begin to see God's kingdom being manifested. When we looked a couple of weeks ago at a beggar sitting outside of the temple who was healed, we commented on how the Jews had lost sight of their obligation to look after the vulnerable amongst them. And as a result, he was reduced to begging for survival. But here we see something in a stark contrast. In Acts 2.44, it says, All the believers were together, had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. In Acts 4.32, we read, All the believers were one one in heart and mind. No one claimed that his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. For time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Now, we need to read this carefully. And I want you to note something. It does not say it's wrong to own things. Some in the church will always earn more than others. Some in the church will often own more than others. But what it does say is that there needs to be a true corporate responsibility for each other. And as needs arise, we need to make sure that they are met. Now I do want to draw a contrast here. I wholeheartedly agree with what Melk's trying to do with his list at the back. But I do want to point out, there is a difference between needs and wants. And what this is talking about is people who have needs. Now, Malk's put on the list that he wants, I would say, a chip fryer. His stomach tells me he doesn't need one. Mine would be in the same category. But we need to be clear. There is a difference between our needs and our wants. And that's what often gets us into so many difficulties. It doesn't say in this passage that they gave everything away. It doesn't say they lived in austerity. It says they shared everything. They didn't count it as their own. But they recognised it for what it truly is. A gift from God to bless them and to bless other people. Their ownership of their possessions 
was less important to them than the well-being of their brothers and sisters in the church. And that's where we see the contrast. Because what it is, is they were selfless in a culture that was selfish. And that's how the church stands out today. We then notice, it says they came and they laid these things at the apostles' feet. What it means is they handed them over to the use of those who lead them. But it was a voluntary thing. The apostles didn't force them to. It wasn't a condition of them being a believer. It was a heartfelt response to what God had done in their lives. And here we see another distinction. It was voluntary in a culture where offerings were part of the law. It says some of them sold land or buildings and gave the proceeds. And by doing that, they lost all the future use or income that land would have brought for them. They were in fact even giving up part of the inheritance that would in future go to their children. They were making a true sacrifice. And that was a sacrifice far greater than the cost of buying two doves at the entrance to the temple. So again, they were being truly sacrificial in a culture that sacrificed animals every day of the week. There was no law, there was no command that they should be doing this. It's a glimpse of a kingdom that's to come. Because in Revelation 21 we read, There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And here, for the first time, we come across someone that we're going to read about more and more as we continue through Acts. In fact, he's held up as an example. His name is Joseph. He's a Levite from Cyprus. And in this passage, we get introduced to Joseph. Now, as you read through the rest of Acts, you might say, I don't remember reading much about Joseph. And that's because he was well known to the apostles. He was so well known, they didn't call him Joseph. They called him by his nickname. Now, did you have nicknames when you were at school? Did you give them to other people? What sort of nicknames did you have? I bet there was Four Eyes. Titch. Titch. Yeah. Square Head, Big Ears, Ginge, Copper Top, Duracell, Curly. You know, they, they ring off the tongue, don't they? But do you know, nearly all the nicknames we give people are negative in one way or another. Yet Joseph had the nickname Barnabas. And it obviously stuck, because as we read through the rest of Acts, that's all they called him, Barnabas. And it meant encourager, son of encouragement. Can you imagine it? Hiya, cheerful! Hello, happy! Hey, here comes encourager! It tells you something about his personality. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles called Barnabas. It means son 
of encouragement. And he sold the field and he brought the money he had and put it at the apostles' feet. And so Luke records this simple, selfless, voluntary, generous and sacrificial act as he brings the money and puts it at the apostles' feet. Now whether he did that literally or whether that's Luke's way of describing the attitude he gave that gift in, I don't know. But he handed it over and he gave them control of it and there were no strings attached. And that's how our offerings to God need to be. They need to be selfless. They need to be voluntary. They need to be sacrificial. And there need to be no strings attached. And this is where we go into chapter 5. Now when the Bible was written, the chapters weren't there and the verses. And I think this division comes in the wrong place here because you can't understand the story of Ananias and Sapphira unless you've just read just read what has happened beforehand because Luke moves on to record the events that followed that isn't one of the best setting points for the church but Luke was committed to giving an accurate warts and all picture of what was going on. Now the Bible doesn't always tell us the motives behind people's actions. But I think as we read this passage, we can take some fairly good educated guesses. Ananias and Sapphira had seen what was going on. We know Barnabas was a favourite. He was well known to the apostles. And here we see him publicly giving a very generous donation. Now in the world, favour can often be bought with generosity. That's why we see so much corruption in the world. It's why we see that happening around us. People come to expect that everything comes down to money. Now we should know better than that because we have been warned, it's in 1 Timothy 6 verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Equally, we have an assurance in Hebrews 13. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. But you can imagine Ananias and Sapphira putting two and two together and coming up with something other than four. He's a favourite. He's given generously. You know... We'd quite like to be favourites of the apostles. And we do have a plot of land. Wouldn't it be worth getting a nickname like Barnabas has? Yet somehow they couldn't quite bring themselves to do such a selfless act. 
so they agreed that what they do is hold back some of the money. And we see the results. It costs them their very lives. God struck them both down within a few hours of each other. So what did they do wrong? Was it that they should have given all the money? I don't think that was the real issue. Because Peter had said to them, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Peter recognised it was a voluntary gift. They didn't have to give anything at all, let alone all of it. Their error was deceit. The impression they gave is that they were giving it all. And even when Sapphira was challenged, she stuck to the story. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. And as a result of that, she suffered the same fate as Ananias. She was struck down on the spot, she died, and she was buried. They lied to God. That's what it says. They lied to the Holy Spirit and to God. And God does not tolerate such behaviour. To lie to men is one thing. But to lie to God is a risky business because he always knows the truth. And he will catch you out. When I read that passage, what it seems to me is having just contrasted what was happening in other parts of the church with the new kingdom, what they were doing typifies the world. Rather than being selfless, their motives were selfish. They wanted reputation and renown. Rather than being voluntary, I think they were compelled to do it by their motives. They felt it was something they had to do. Their giving wasn't sacrificial because they held back what they felt they needed. And instead of no strings attached, they clearly had in mind what they wanted in return. They wanted the favour of the apostles. That's a trap we can easily fall into because our world measures success in terms of wealth, in terms of possessions, in terms of power. Yet many that in the world's eyes wouldn't be deemed to be successful are very successful in the eyes of God. Jesus said, and you can read about it in Matthew 19, 23 onwards, I tell you the truth. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now that's not because God is against the rich, but because with money and influence, there comes great responsibility. The more we have in the bank, the easier it is to be self-reliant instead of reliant on God, on Jehovah Jireh, our provider. He warned us, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy 
and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's the trouble. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be. If your treasure in your life is money in the bank, is riches and possessions, then that is what will constantly be in your thoughts, and that is what will drive your motives. If your treasure is seeking something from another kingdom, then that's where your thoughts will be. So where do you want your thoughts to be? Which kingdom? Do you want them to be about the things of this material world or about things which will endure forever? Jesus continued. He went on and he said, No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life about what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labour or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon, in all his splendour, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown on the fire, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Times may have changed. But I tell you what. Motives don't. It said here, 2,000 years ago, pagans run after these things. They still do today. Don't get sucked into idolising wealth. So what does it mean for us today? I think it means that we need to make sure that we are seeking spiritual treasure, not storing up earthly riches. What does that mean in real terms? It means God should come top of the list for us, over and above other things in our life. We need to remember that it is God who provides for us, even when it feels like day to day it's our employer's. 
We need to be good stewards of the things that God gives us. And we need to be mindful of the needs of others. I think in our giving, we should be trying to display the characteristics of Barnabas, not Ananias. It should be selfless, not selfish. It should be voluntary, not under compulsion. That is, it's under grace, not under law. It should be sacrificial, not holding back. And it should be expecting nothing in return. Paul exhorts the church in Corinth. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that in all things and at all times having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.